Hey, it's Nate Dufort. If you didn't listen to the last episode, let me get you caught up. I've recently found myself with some unexpected free time on my hands. After many years with one company, we have amicably parted ways. And now, I'm taking every chance I can to talk to people. Those with similar experiences and those a little further down the road. The funny thing no one tells you about unemployment? There are a lot of coffees. And there are a lot of lunches. I hated hearing myself. I hate hearing my voice recorded. I feel like I sound like a Muppet, like a, a, a man <laughs> with like this Muppet, like, hey guys, how you know it? That's, that's what I feel like I sound like. It's so gross. I hate it. It's the worst. I feel like a man. Like, I, yeah, I feel like I'm going through puberty. So you're super stoked on putting a microphone in your face right now? Yeah, it's the best thing ever. This is JB. She's a good friend and colleague who's also found herself without work. We caught up over lunch after she heard herself in the first episode of this podcast. Um, so my husband, Ken, he's like been great. He um, totally supports me. Like Ken being laid off a couple years ago has made it sympathetic. Um, to my situation. He totally understands. He totally gets it. And, you know, because I, f- I have so much anxiety where, because it's a job, trying to find a job. And then I feel horrible because, oh, crap, I didn't clean. I didn't, like, the dishes are still sitting there. I didn't, like, oh, I didn't, you know, do the laundry. And he's like, dude, relax. You know, you don't have to do all that stuff. And, like, we should all be pitching in. But I feel like because I'm home, I should be doing that. But you can't because you're looking for a job, which is a job. Like, I should get paid by looking for a job. So tell me, you were just talking about, like, the jobs you're looking at. Um, has anything surprised you? You're like, oh, I'd give that a shot, or I'd go interview for that if they'd have me. Uh, yeah, concierge, which I kind of wanted to do that, like, when I was younger, like, work for a hotel, but this was actually in a building and for all the different businesses, and... It was I went for the interview. They called me for the second interview. And then when they told me where it was, I declined because it was in Ken's building. <laughs> I was like, can you imagine me sitting at a desk in the, in the middle of the building and all of your coworkers are like... Hey, Jenny. Hey, JB. Hi. How's it going? I'm like, I'm mortified. I'm like, no, I can't do that. And and Ken really, he's like, well, maybe you might like it. Maybe he just wanted me out of the house. But no, I, yeah, I couldn't do it. These conversations are my norm now. Interviewing, side hustling, comparing leads. But it's not just about trying to gain employment traction. These coffee meetings are more than that. When you're unemployed, they can be your social lifeline. I can't believe how much I took for granted just seeing people at work every day. It's a seemingly small thing, but it makes a huge difference in your daily morale. If I wasn't actively reaching out to people, I'd be sitting in front of my computer, saying I was going to go to the gym and still not finding the time to do the dishes. There's a feeling that if you just work a little longer, try a little harder, 
everything will get back to what you thought was normal. You're listening to Midstream, a podcast about change. Once I settled on making this podcast, I knew I was going to have to take advantage of all the resources in the city. Chicago is, after all, an amazing hub for radio. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That's all coming up on Sound Opinion. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi. And this is Resound. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial. One story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. Being in the comedy scene, I've got to know tons of interesting folks, and with my move into audio, it made sense to hit one person up in particular. Justin Kaufman's part of a long-running comedy ensemble called Schadenfreude, and before taking on his own radio show, The Download, on Chicago's WGN Radio, he was at WBEZ for 20 years. I talked to Justin, over breakfast, about his time at WBEZ and how The Download came to be. I started as a as a producer for some weekend shows that were great. Metropolis with Aaron Freeman, which was an awesome show. It, and to be on a show like that to start, it was a show that was just filled like with the host curiosity. Aaron was a Second City main stage guy who who just was super into science and and it was just a different kind of show. He was a performer, and the way that he did the show was so exciting there was so much energy and there was a great following and we would do remotes at the museums or something on a saturday people of all types would come out it was an amazing way for me to start and i worked with a great producer uh and jody becker and tom tuber who is now in wisconsin jody's in la and uh i worked on a talk show as well called talk of the city with richard Steele, which was all about issues in chicago so i learned quick quick when i was 19 20 years old that there's a lot more to the world than just my Wonder Lake college view. And I had to quickly sort of, you know, figure it out. And so I went through that. And then I was a producer on uh, 848, which was a startup magazine show. And then I had my own show called Schadenfreude, which was, you know, based on the comedy group that I was in for years, still in. And, um, and then became an executive producer. I, I, I did so much stuff. I did, I worked every single job. And that was the point. By the end, of, when I was done with WBZ, I had done every job. I was pretty. I, the only thing I didn't do was like maybe sales, but I had changed light bulbs. I had like you know uh, done archiving, producing, hosting, editing, everything you possibly could imagine. And that was something that I think was brought to, my resume is pretty small when you think about it. I just worked in one place, but I did so many things at that place that it readied me for something different. You made a pretty dramatic shift. How did that all come about? I was working as executive producer at WBEC, and I uh, had a relationship with Todd Manley, who is the uh, now he's the vice president of uh, uh, programming at WGN, and he, I think he, that was his title uh, at the time as well. 
and we just were having conversations just as uh, how you know radio is and and there was this idea that we wanted to work together and you know at first it was well maybe we can do something on the website maybe we could do this and and at a, at a certain point WGN had an opening at night and Todd and Jimmy DeCastro and Jackie Paulus and the, and the people at WGN came to came to me and said, hey, we want to do something that's different. We want to do something at night, almost a throwback to what WGN was known for. WGN has had a long-standing tradition of doing uh, NPR-like programming at night. Milt Rosenberg is one of the legends of Chicago broadcasting. He did a show, I think it was nine to, 7 to 9 or 9 to 11, where it was number one for years. And what he would do is he'd, he'd interview authors and interview newsmakers, but it was an interview-type show. It wasn't a call-in necessarily. It wasn't, uh, we're going to talk about what happened today in the news. So they wanted to kind of go back to that, but in a younger way. And so I, you know, that's what I do. And that's what I did at WBEZ. So you know, they had this idea for the download, which was a, a show um, that would would bring some of that stuff back, uh, and and I went for it. And it's something. I mean, it's it's it, for everything that was happening at WBZ, and I love that place. I still do. It wasn't my show. It never is your show. You know, it's the public show. And this was a situation where I could go and have my own show. You know, where my name is in the in the title, the download with Justin Kaufman at the best radio station Chicago's ever seen. You know, WGN, if you're in radio, is the number one. It's always been the number one. And as talk shows and talk radio kind of diminishes, you know, and you can find it in different places, WGN still is number one. And for me, it's like, I don't know, like if you're in radio and you don't want to be on WGN, you got something wrong with you, you know? <laughs> I asked Justin what advice he'd give to someone in my position, and unsurprisingly, he turned to our shared background in improvisation. The performance side of it is to really use the same tenants that are used in improv yes and 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 trusting your partner and letting the conversation flow from listening i mean that's that is the key man the hardest part about doing a talk show is shutting up that is it man you hear it all the time on radio man hosts want to be the ones to talk and it's better content if you can just shut your damn mouth <laughs> you know like i mean that is it's so hard man it's and and not to get lost in your head like a lot of times you know, you're thinking about what your next question is. And when I started hosting for the first time, I'd be doing that and I would miss kernels that were just left, you know, like they were like volleyballs, like just up, you know, and, someone said, and I had a terrible childhood and I'm like, let's talk about, uh, uh, you know, why you wrote this book. Like, you know, I, I learned early on that I need to be listening to the answers, you know, cause that's really what's going to sort of be the next question for me. Uh, and so that's, I feel like that's just the reason that I can do that is that it's same communication I learned in sketch comedy that I need to be prepared. I need to be listening to what my partner is saying because there is, you know, there is a goal to get to the end of this thing. But in the moment we have to create this work and, and lead with your curiosity, man. Like that's the other thing too. I'm, I'm trying to more and more like I've, I came into this job at WGN with a lot of things I don't know. And I have to continue to remember that I don't know. And so there were a lot of times I'll do interviews with stuff that I'm like, I don't even, I don't know if I would have ever cared about the opera or ballet. It's a great, ballet's a great example. Don't have any experience. I haven't seen a ballet in my life. I don't know, I just missed it, right? And then Ashley Weeder comes in from the Joffrey Ballet and they, they pitch it to me and I'm like, I'd love to talk to him. I don't know anything about ballet. And then we have a great conversation about arts and they like it too. Cause they're like, it's not someone who thinks they know everything about ballet. So, I mean, go and try to take on topics and talk to people that intimidate you, that 
but you still have like feel confident in the fact that your curiosity can lead you through. Following my curiosity led me to a LinkedIn post a friend recommended. It was not your typical LinkedIn fare, no clickbaity article that's actually thinly veiled marketing. It was a relatively vulnerable post written by someone recently laid off from an asset management company. I had to meet this person. While the story of Patty Stanton is a pretty classic one, the class and bravery definitely piqued my interest. So, um, my company got, essentially was put up for sale. Um, we were a smaller shop based out of San Francisco, uh, looking for a new buyer. So there was a, a few months, maybe four to five months where it was kind of, uh, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion going around. Um, and a lot of new buyers circling around. Eventually, we got bought by a company who was owned by a private equity company. Typically, private equity will come in and kind of just look at the books. They don't look at the people and see what's expendable, what's not expendable. Um, ultimately, it was found that our team was expendable, and they closed our team down. So initially, I was you know, upset. Um, I loved the role. I liked the people I worked with. Um, unfortunately, that's what happens sometimes in the industry. And, you know, I tried to stay positive. Um, there were days that I wasn't positive. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I think I'm qualified uh, as a candidate for another company. So I tried to keep that in the back of my head that something will come up. If you just continue to stay positive, network, um, and be active. And maybe that this period of time, I didn't even know how long it would be, or I don't know how long it's going to be, um, might be a good time to kind of reflect on what you have. And, um, you know, that was a, that was kind of the impetus of, okay, I've got a great family. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got three beautiful children. Um, I have a home. I have, you know, a lot of things that a lot of people don't have. Um, so kind of keeping that perspective helped me and has helped me through this. So, and then in addition to that is, you know, talking to a lot of people. Um, talking to people who have been through the situation. Talking to people who I've kind of looked up to throughout my life. Um, maybe some, actually some mentors in my life. And just keeping a... A focus and trying not to go on the other side, which would be being negative and um, and just going down a different path that wouldn't be helpful in my situation right now. What, um, if you don't mind me asking, is your children's level of understanding of this? Um, well, they know I'm home. <laughs> so it's funny. Yesterday, I was picking up my son from school and I said Jack I had my interview today and they decided to go with somebody else <laughs> he said why and I said uh, you know I don't know Jack I thought I was I thought I was qualified he said do they just not like you um, so I you know I, I think they they get it um, and, and my daughter Libby's a little bit younger. She understands it. She's always like fighting for me to get the job. Um, I don't think they understand the, you know, maybe some of the 
internal pain it causes for me. Um, but they understand that I want a job and that um, I'm trying to get a job. So, you know, will they ever remember this when they're older? I don't know. Patty and I started talking about the LinkedIn article and what was the thinking behind the post? So the general message was, you know, giving a little bit of background on my situation and also extending an invite to those who might be in a similar situation, which is unemployment. Um, I think the reason I felt it was important to share and why I shared it was, you know, part, honestly, part of it was selfish because I, I wanted to know if there were other people in the same situation. And obviously there are. Um, but I also wanted to be a resource to those who are in the same predicament and, you know, let them know that there's hope. It's not the end of the world. Um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all in this together. And, um, you know, what's the point of... of ha- I think I shared this with you earlier, but what's the point of having these feelings if you can't share them with anybody? Which is... Um, it's something that... You know, I don't know, maybe some people... Fr- I didn't initially know how people would look at it. Maybe people would be like, oh, what's, you know, what is this? He's looking for sympathy or, um, but it it really came from, you know, from the bottom of my heart. And I felt that, you know, it was a good way to let people know my situation, um, to ask for help, I think, and to let others know that they had someone else in that situation that they could ask for help as well. So I was turned on to it by a friend, and I, I have to imagine that that's how other people uh, that aren't in your immediate network have found this thing. What's the response been from people you know and from strangers? Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, I've gotten a couple calls and emails and texts about, you know, saying how it was a great piece. Um, there's also been people, you know, who have have reached out to help, um, to ask what they could do. Um, and there's been complete, complete strangers that I have no idea who they are, who are, you know, offering, you know, words of wisdom and, and, um, thoughts and putting me in touch with recruiters. And so it's been, it's been awesome. It's been really, um, I wasn't expecting that response. I appreciated Patty's perspective and started really pushing to open up and share myself with others in hopes of it being returned. Then, I saw an article in Inc. magazine that caught my eye. You may not know the name Glenn Kreider, but if you mailed a letter in 2008, you've almost definitely seen his work. Kreider was an IT specialist that lost his job in the financial crisis. At the age of 54, starting a new job in IT was proving difficult, but years of preparation and relying on a fix-it mindset since youth opened up the perfect opportunity. So I've always been that kid that would take things apart and not always be able to put them back together, but always interested to understand how things work. And, um, you know, sometimes that gets you in trouble. I don't know if you knew anything about clocks, but, you know, as a seven or eight year old boy 
you know, messing around with a clock in the attic, if that spring cuts loose, surprise, it's like a bomb going off. Um, but uh, so, um, so I've learned from some of those, uh, you know, occasions. And another thing too that um, that comes to mind, and it's uh, using tools for other than their intended purposes, and that's. Um, Systematic, I believe, from you know being a member of a family that wasn't necessarily um, poor, but you know the the symptoms of being poor, not having you know enough money to buy a good set of tools. So you, you you're forced sometimes to use a screwdriver to drive a nail. Or that's a mm-hmm. a really crude example, but um, I remember when I was a kid, my father. Um, didn't have a, uh, a certain tool that is required to tune up his car, so he would use a matchbook, um, the, the thickness of a matchbook to um, as a, a fueler gauge, basically to set the points on his automobile. So I don't know how old you are, but um, that's the way you know automobiles used to run. Um, they weren't electronic, so they had to have some kind of a mechanical mechanism, you know, to um, to fire each of the six or eight cylinders, whatever was going on there. So an entire childhood of that kind of behavior of using tools for other than their um, intended purpose. So with that comes a mindset, you know, that um, you can accomplish anything, you know, any task that's put in front of you if you simply, you know, apply your ingenuity or your, your thought processes to accomplish whatever task is in front of you. So that, you know, imagine 60-some years of that to now um, be able to um, apply all that I've learned um with the new tools and modern technology. So all that, you know, so a, a child that um, is somewhat exhi- exhibits, you know, some intelligent behavior and, um, you know, uh, taking things apart. So my grandmother um, thought in her will that I would be the perfect candidate to receive this antique clock. Um, that was passed down through my family um and and when i received that clock it wasn't um it wasn't in running order so uh then i set about to try to understand what it would take you know to repair the clock so when i first received it through the clock the, the mechanism that causes it to strike or count the hours wasn't uh, properly aligned. Never having seen the gear train, I was able to figure that out um, and make the clock count the appropriate number of hours instead of 13 on the um, on the uh, you know the midnight call. It, it would strike 13, and I figured out how to make that count the proper number. Anyway, um, so I looked around and thought it would be. Um, a good thing for me to um, work as an apprentice to learn how to repair that clock for myself simply because I thought, you know, it was a family heirloom and uh, it was certainly worth the effort. So I I did that, um, not really knowing uh, what was coming, and that was um, acquiring uh, some miniature tools 
to uh, use to work on the clocks. So one of those miniature tools was a lathe, uh, a watchmaker's lathe. Um, and so uh, at some point in time, I realized that I could use those watchmaker tools to build uh, Christmas ornaments for my wife. So again, an opportunity to use a tool, a tool that for something other than its intended purpose. Uh, and therefore, I made a toy soldier with a watchmaker slave. I relate to Kreider more than I can even share. Having strong German lineage myself and coming from a family of woodworkers, I idolized my grandfather, or Pa, as I'm still lucky enough to call him to this day. Watching his precision with a hand tool or power tool is hypnotic, and as a kid, it made me think humans could accomplish anything. Glenn started using his skills and artistic side to craft small ornaments for his wife. Interest from those around them turned it into a weekend job selling his wares at craft shows. The German history of craftsmanship kept extending past the clockmaking and further into the rich history of folk art. It was natural uh, alignment of the stars for me to um, use the skills that I uh, had learned in clockmaking to ma manufacture um, nutcrackers. And... You know, with no internet, I was kind of like looking around back then, you know, uh, researching libraries and whatever, just try to figure out, you know, why is there no manufacturers, you know, anywhere other than in Germany? So, um, you know, all of a sudden, the idea of beginning a business with no competition um, seems like a pretty good idea to me. <laughs> um, little did I know how difficult it would be to accomplish, you know, or to begin that business. But uh, 40 years later, you know, here we are, overnight success in 40 years. But if you went to Google or Ask or any of the good search engines right now and typed American Nutcrackers, I'm going to be on the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And that's basically because I'm the only one. And that's what happened with the United States Postal Service. Um, in 2006, they decided that they wanted to produce some Christmas stamps that had the images of Nutcrackers on them. Um, and in a similar search in 2006, they only found two or three people capable of the skills, and I was one of those people. So they discreetly and through a third party um, uh, asked or called or contacted these two or three people um, around the country, those, these two or three people, which I have now come to know, um, to then ask, you know, what would be involved, how would you do it, so on and so forth, not revealing who they, who this person was to me or the other candidates um, until uh, a year later to say, oh, by the way, you've been talking to Sally. She's uh, our delegate, and would you like to um, produce four nutcrackers for us that would become stamps, and that happened in 2008. So within a short span of time, Kreider auditions for the United States Postal Service for the role of Nutcracker Builder, loses his job in IT, sees his hobby grow into a million-plus-dollar business while having his work featured on stamps and those Nutcrackers themselves landing a home at the Smithsonian. A lot can happen in a year. To see Glenn's work, check out Nutcrackers USA and Ginger Cottages online and at stores all across the country.
that's it for this time. Come back for the next episode where I'm going to be shaking things up a bit. Produced by me, Nate Dufort. Our theme song is by Vlad Burkheimer. Logo by Matthew Rader. Midstream is looking for sponsors. If you or someone you know are interested, please email nate at midstreampodcast.com. Want to help the podcast out? There's one huge thing you can do, and the best part is, it only takes a second. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and don't forget to review us on iTunes. Big thanks to JB, Patty Stanton, Glenn Kreider, and Justin Kaufman, who you can hear weeknights on the download with Justin Kaufman on WGN Radio. Additional thanks to Eleanor Riley Condit and Janelle Rogers at Greenlight Go. Finally, you're listening to singer-songwriter Steph Barak and the track So Familiar off the Never Again EP. To check out more of her music, go to stephbarak.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-B-A-R-R-A-K dot com. <laughs>